Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week, making his first, but I hope not last, appearance on Beg to Differ is Washington Post Chief Correspondent Dan Balls. Welcome one and all. Well, this week, the January 6th committee, about which some people were skeptical when it was formed, this week it really, it set off fireworks reminding all of us of the awful events of January 6th, uh, the anniversary of which is coming up. So. There are so many things to consider. Let's just begin with Liz Cheney's role here. I'm going to pitch this to you first, Linda. I was a little bit critical of Liz Cheney a few months ago, saying you know she was awfully late to the anti-Trump team. But I have to say, she has really risen to the occasion and really become the image of what you hope a principled leader will be, don't you? Absolutely. She has uh, joined my triumvirate of uh, three heroes, uh, starting with Ginger Patrick, Maggie Thatcher, and now Liz Cheney. I think she is a real hero in this battle. And I don't fault her for not being more critical of Trump while he was in office in the sense that much of his agenda she agreed with. Now, I happen to disagree with Liz Cheney on a few things, immigration. I think she's not where I am on immigration. But I agree with her on a lot of other things. And more importantly, she agreed with Donald Trump in a lot of his policies. So I think that kept her relatively quiet. But she certainly, during the last impeachment and certainly after January 6th, she rose to uh, be the leader of the anti-Trump movement on the right. And unfortunately, she doesn't have a whole lot of followers. Uh, But her speech this week, and and more importantly, her role, for example, reading out the various texts that members of Congress uh, sent to Mark Meadows, I thought was very important. And by the way, without actually revealing their names, now Jim Jordan has stood up and said, yeah, some of those texts were for me. Some of the worst texts, including the basic blueprint for a coup that he sent at one point on how to not count uh, the electoral votes. So I think she's just played a marvelous role. And I Don't know how, but I think there ought to be lots of effort spent in devising a way to keep her in Congress, which might mean the Democrats deciding not to run anybody and letting her, if she does not secure the nomination from the Republican Party, let her run as an independent and the Democrats not run anyone. I think it's very important to keep her voice out there. Wow, that's an excellent idea. I wonder. Well, Dan Balls, what do you think the chances are that the Democrats would do that in Wyoming? (laughs) (laughs) It's a really interesting notion. 
first of all, there aren't that many Democrats in Wyoming. Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> True. So, as a practical matter, uh, it might help a little, but I don't think it would be enough to uh, get her over the top. If she decides to run as an independent, which may have to be her course, she would have to win over people who have voted for her in the past, but who might be disappointed with some of the things she's been doing. And so that's a that's problematic. Her her chances at this point are questionable. But I was watching something last night and it was on CNN and Stuart Stevens was being interviewed and he was asked about her prospects for reelection. And he in the most matter of fact way said, oh, she'll be reelected. And, you know, I don't know whether Stuart has his finger on the pulse of, of that state. Um, <laughs> I suspect he does not. But it may be that he believes that in the end, the role that she is playing will wear well with people, that this committee will produce a report that does get to the heart of the matter, and that, that in the end, the Trump factor in Wyoming will play less strongly than, uh, than it may look like right now. Well, our colleague Sarah Longwell at the, at the Bulwark has done a series of focus groups, and she's very dubious about Cheney's chances. And then again, that was a while ago, so we'll see. But just to continue with what we learned this week, Bill, Bill Galston, do you get the sense that the committee is moving toward a serious consideration of whether Trump was attempting a coup? He was certainly tempted by a coup. He usually finds a way of insulating himself from the bad stuff. But uh, clearly, efforts to nullify or misrepresent the election results in a number of states were on the table. And as we knew before the latest revelations, the ground was prepared for intense pressure on Vice President Pence. So if uh, the president had been able to use proxies and others, as well as his direct communications, to persuade the vice president to do what he ultimately declined to do, I think he would have accepted the fruits of those machinations without any hesitation whatsoever. And so the question of whether that would have been a coup or not, it would certainly have been a turning upside down of our democracy. In addition, of course, some of the documents that were revealed indicated that proposals to use the National Guard, the military, et cetera, U.S. Marshals to achieve political results that wouldn't have been achieved otherwise. Those proposals were on the table. And so I'm less reluctant to use the word coup than I might have been a month ago. Damon, so just a few of the examples of things that were done. First of all, before the election, he refused to say that he would abide by the results. After the election, he had meetings with legislators, state legislators, pressuring them to submit slates of delegates different from those the voters chose. He pressured secretaries of state, most famously Brad Raffensperger, to, quote, find him the requisite number of votes. He put pressure on his attorney general to declare the entire election void and corrupt. He put pressure on the vice president to step outside his lawful authority and reject the Electoral College. He, uh, as, as Bill was saying, he considered the use of the U.S. military. He entertained suggestions that he declare martial law. That was most famously suggested by General Michael Flynn. And then 
this is what came out this week in vivid colors, namely that while the mob was sacking the Capitol, Trump was on the phone to senators trying to get them to delay the vote, to delay the certification. That's quite a bill of indictment. It certainly is. I very much am with Bill. It sounds like what Bill was just saying about the question of was it a coup or not. Actually, I've gone back and forth on that myself. It just kind of is a technical question. And, you know, at the week, every year, I do a a wrap-up column at the end of the year titled uh, What I Got Wrong in Whatever Year It Is. So I actually just this afternoon filed my What I Got Wrong in 2021 column. And one of the items was this business about, is it a coup? Is it not a coup? And I sort of reprimanded myself for even really caring about this question too much early on because I wrote a column in which I kind of led with the statement that, no, it's not a coup. A coup is when uh, a group of uh, elites, especially military figures, overthrow a government and put a new one in power. And that's not what happened here because it was the sitting president attempting to remain in power and the military probably would not have gone along with it, at least at the upper echelons of the military. And that's all true. But in the end, that really is a kind of textbook case, I think, of missing the the forest for the trees. What you just enumerated, and there's other stuff too, is just, okay, whatever we're going to call it, let's just describe it. This is a man who lost a free and fair election, who attempted to raise questions about the vote, None of those questions were verified as being based in truth. It was presented in several dozen courts around the country at all different levels, state and federal, every one of which rejected the claims. And after all of that and two months into it on the day when Congress is going through its usually pro forma act of certifying the electoral votes, he's both inciting a riot and an insurrection at Congress and, as you say, on the phone, trying to twist the arms of elected representatives to what? To keep him president beyond what the vote would dictate. I don't know exactly what technical term to call that other than the overthrow of American democracy and the transformation of the American presidency into an authoritarian dictatorship. That's what he wanted to do. And however we label it technically, that is something for which his name should live in infamy in American history, even if half the country or one-third to two-fifths of the country won't believe it because they're in hock to his fantasy reality. The rest of us have a duty as citizens to take a stand and say it over and over again. And that's why I want to loop back briefly to Liz Cheney, because I have actually not been a huge Liz Cheney booster. I think she's come up a few times on the podcast over the last year. And I've usually given a kind of a rote 
the statement, oh, yeah, she's doing a good job. But the truth is I used to be a Republican, and I haven't voted for a Republican since before 2004. I left during the Bush administration, and Liz Cheney is very much a Bush-era Republican, both ideologically and in terms of family ties, obviously. And so I, I've been a little squeamish about you know, embracing her that much. But I have to say what I've seen over the last month and especially the last week, I just have to stand back and say, you know what? We have to put all of that aside. If, if Liz Cheney were running for president against a, a, a moderate Democrat, I wouldn't hesitate to vote for the other person. But in this context, she has she has been a true national hero and she has shown continual courage in standing up for what's right and true and saying it over and over again, no matter who on her own partisan side of the aisle tries to attack, humiliate, and, and denigrate her. And we all really owe her a huge debt of gratitude for showing us what uh, citizenship on the highest level is really supposed to be about. Amen. And can I just add to that, I think this might have come up on our podcast last week as well, but you know, as the uh, Tim Alberta piece about Congressman Meyer pointed out, at the beginning of the Trump era, criticizing Trump required political courage because he had such a faithful following. But as things have progressed, it requires more than political courage. It now requires actual moral and physical courage to take on Trump because, yeah, because of the you're nature facing, of you his face death threats. Yes, and it, and exactly. And so she is showing every kind of courage, and I cannot praise her enough. All right, well, one of the things, Dan Balls, that she raised is that it is possible that Trump is actually on the hook legally. Now, I've always been skeptical about people who fantasize about Trump getting indicted for this or that, money laundering or whatever, because Trump has a very long track record of sort of insulating himself. You know, when he gives an order to his underlings, you know, Michael Cohen spelled this out. He does it as a mafia don would, without specifically giving them an instruction, but relying upon them to know that he wants the dirty deed done. But she said, quote, did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes? Now, if he is found to have done so, that is a criminal act if you obstruct Congress's official proceedings. What do you make of that? By the way, I'm relying on Washington Post reporting for all of this. <laughs> My colleagues do fabulous work on this front. I thought it was one of the most important things that she did this week, because it put on the table, I think, something that has been in the background, and that is, is there legal culpability for former President Trump on all of this? And as we all know, there's been a hue and cry on the left in particular, uh, that Trump needs to be held accountable and that the attorney general ought to be doing something about that. And what was most intriguing about what Liz Cheney did this week was to suggest that, that this committee ultimately could come to that conclusion. I don't want to get ahead of the story at this point. We don't really know what she truly thinks about that, and we don't know what the committee as a whole thinks about that, and we don't know what evidence they have that they haven't given us even a peek at. So there are a tremendous number of unanswerables at this moment. But it, it seems as though she was pointing in that direction, and in which case, if this committee in 
however many more months it will do its work, comes to that conclusion and publishes that conclusion, it's kind of a reversal of the Mueller report, which is Mueller presented a lot of evidence but said basically that it could not indict the president, but it would be left to, to the Congress to decide what to do. And on that basis, Congress decided not to go ahead with impeachment proceedings. In this case, it could be that the January 6th committee in the House produces a report that puts the Justice Department on the spot to decide whether to go forward with that. Now, again, that is a, a it's a big decision on the part of the January 6th committee. It may be an even bigger decision for the attorney general to take that kind of step would have momentous consequences for the for the country. So we're a long way from that. But the very fact that she put that on the table gives an indication kind of, of where her head is and where she may be trying to lead the committee in her capacity as the vice chair. Linda, among the things revealed this week were the text messages that Mark Meadows received from a series of Fox News stars, Laura Ingram, Brian Kilmeade, Sean Hannity. So the nature of these texts is amazing, right? Because first of all, it shows that despite what they have said since, it was Antifa or it wasn't that big a deal, just a bunch of tourists who got a little little giddy. On the day itself, they were saying things like, this is a disaster for us. This is soiling his legacy. You've got to make it stop. Even Don Jr. was sending texts to Mark Meadows saying, we have to stop this. You have to get him to stop this, which is really interesting considering that Don Jr., you would think, could phone his own father without going through the chief of staff. But, you know, family dynamics, interesting. I refer everyone to the the series Succession if they want a little insight into these kinds of families. Um, (laughs) But but in any event, it's just, it's galling. I'm sorry, I'm practically spitting with fury about these Fox people because, look, I mean, you know, the notion that they would be sending uh, messages to Trump to call off the the goons. Suggests that they kind of knew it wasn't Antifa, right? I mean, if he if, yes. if, if he doesn't have any influence with Antifa, they understood full well who was sacking the Capitol. They are such. I'll use no expletives. They are liars of the worst. Kind. I'm sorry, Linda. That's not really a question. Bill Galston would chastise <laughs> me and say, is there a question there? There really isn't. I'm just uh, throwing it open to you to comment on the Fox role here. And by the way, you know, the idea that these are news people, you know, when they are completely on a team. <sighs> yep. Well, having been a Fox News commentator for 14 years of my life from 2001 to 2015, I'm not terribly surprised. Look, they all obviously had all together too chummy a relationship with Trump and with those in his administration. The idea that these people who are on air, particularly in prime time, are in any way journalists is just nonsense. They're not. They are entertainers. That's what they do. They are also ideologues, and in some cases, their ideology is extremely far right. I think Tucker Carlson, uh, with his great replacement theory, moves into the radical fringe. And so I'm not surprised at all by any of this, nor am I surprised at their hypocrisy. What I am surprised at is that no one in the management of Fox News 
looks at this and says, you know, this maybe isn't such a great idea. I mean, it wasn't such a great idea when Sean Hannity was basically campaigning with President Trump. They've done all sorts of things through the course of the Trump years that were not good ideas. But you would think that somebody on the board at Fox or somebody in management at Fox would say, this is really bad for our reputation and we really ought to rein some of these people in. But so far, that hasn't happened. No, the uh, the cash registers continue to ring. Not to impute motives to anyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Capitalism works. You make money. You know, you do more of what it is that makes money for you. Yeah. Okay, so Bill, <laughs> I want to raise another kind of matter, which is the whole question of incitement to riot. We have pretty high standards in American law about what qualifies as incitement, because if you set the bar too low, you really do impede free speech. But a number of congressmen and, of course, the Trump family themselves that day on January 6th, couldn't you make an argument that this clears the bar? Mo Brooks, Representative Mo Brooks, today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Are you willing to do what it takes to fight for America? And more along those lines, you know, the, Trump, I want you to go down there to the Capitol. I mean, he aimed the mob at the Capitol and he told them what to do. You think that clears the bar of incitement? Uh, I am not now, nor have I ever been a lawyer. <laughs> this is a technical legal question that I'm not going to pronounce on, but I will say this, and this is my general take on the discussion so far. This is a political struggle. I do not believe that we can settle this political struggle through legal means. Does that mean that no one who egregiously violates the law in the areas that we've been talking about up to now should ever be prosecuted? No, it doesn't mean that. But my fear is that a lot of people in my political tribe believe that the legal route will somehow take down people, clear them off the battlefield, and change the balance of power politically. I do not believe that for a minute. Yeah. And this is a struggle that is going to go on for at least three more years and probably longer. A contributor to New York Magazine and an old acquaintance of mine, Ed Kilgore, recently published an article advocating and sketching a three-year plan to defeat the plot against America. I think he's absolutely right about this, but we cannot win in the courtroom what we lose on the field of political competition. And I think we ought to get clear about that. That's a good point. And with that, we will turn to our next topic. Joe Biden is 79 years old, and there is a lot of talk about whether he is going to be running for a second term. He himself says yes, but there are a lot of people who doubt that and others who are uh, hoping that it's not true. So the question for the panel is, what would be best for the country, 
for the party, for the man himself, for all concerned. Should he not run? By the way, if, if he were to run and be reelected, he would be 86 at the close of his second term. Damon Linker, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, he'd, he'd be a lame duck, but is that so bad? Well, I do tend to think, having seen the man in action uh, in the White House for nearly a year now, I am inclined to think what I, what I sort of thought from the very beginning, given his age and performance on the multiple debate stages of the Democratic primaries. Yeah, I think he should, he should probably step down and let someone else take over. I would add, though, the extremely important codicil to that, which is that he should not do anything to indicate his intention to do this until after the midterms. He absolutely should say nothing and make every indication that he plans to run. He would instantly become a lame duck, and he cannot become a lame duck before the midterms. So, as we all know from being politics watchers, presidents after the midterm election in their second term are really lame ducks. They get very little accomplished. They're very weak. The entire political system ends up devoted to thinking through and figuring out who is going to be the leader of that party going forward. And he can't allow that to happen. He already, I think, does appear to be a fairly weak president, given his advanced age and just the dynamics in the party and how narrowly divided the two parties are between each other, but then also the, how divided the Democratic Party is with internally. And that would just be amplified to exponential amounts if he were to indicate an intention not to run. This by no means solves the Democratic Party's problems because then the presumptive nominee would be the vice president, Kamala Harris, and everyone seems to agree that she has, um, shall we say, some political weaknesses. And if she's not going to be the nominee either because she's too weak or because some other people decide they're going to try to uh, depose her, and I think that's very likely. I think we're going to end up where it's going to be a big old mess in the typical contact sport that Washington journalists love, which is, hey, watch the Democrats beat each other up. Not great, but frankly, at this point, the idea of Joe Biden trying to win a reelection two to three years from now doesn't feel like a, a really great activity <laughs> for American democracy. I mean, it is his age, but also the way his age presents itself. He's not that much older than Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is terrible in more ways than I can enumerate, but he doesn't quite present as aged as Biden does. And so if Trump is the nominee, putting them both up there together side by side is a very bad idea. But really, just in general, like, why can't our democracy put someone up who is a little a little bit more vibrant, a little bit more kind of of the moment than this? Biden did a great public service in running and winning and ridding us for a brief period of Donald Trump. But I think he's he's done that good. And this might be the end here. Dan, Damon mentioned the vice president. Her ratings are actually lower than any recent vice president. And polls are just snapshots, of course, but arguably she didn't show very good political skill when she ran for president, even though she had a ton of money and lots of pizzazz and so forth. Uh, she just fizzled out before even the first votes were cast in 2019. Um, 
considering the nature of the Democratic Party, how important it is to be a woman, how important it is to be a member of a minority group, the fact that vice presidents are practically never denied the nomination of their party, what do you think the chances are that the Democrats could actually deny her the the prize? Well, let uh, let me go back to the question about whether the president will run again. Oh, right. Okay. This is not a question that a journalist should or will answer, which is whether he should or shouldn't run. I think just from observation and from conversations, I think he genuinely wants to run. I think he believes he will run. And I think he believes he is in good physical and mental shape. I've heard from from different angles two sides to that. One that, you know, in private meetings, he's as sharp as can be, and others that say from a slightly farther distance, he does not look like he is. And I know that, as Damon was saying, there are a lot of things he does in the public domain that that make him look his age. Throughout the party, and Bill would have a better sense of this than I, I think, but throughout the party, there are more people who believe he will not run than think he will run. Now, they don't know that, but that seems to be their conclusion, that in the end, as he approaches the time when he has to make a decision, that the decision will be no. That may be the case. If it is, I think there will be a a pretty spirited battle for that nomination. Kamala Harris would start with certain assets, obviously. A sitting vice president begins a campaign like that with assets, as everybody has suggested. The fact that she is a, a black woman also gives her standing within the party in an important constituency. And she was not able to do anything with that as a candidate for the nomination in 2019, but as a sitting vice president, she might be able to. Having said that, there's no question that there is, I don't know what the right word is, disappointment or a sense of being underwhelmed at her performance as vice president. And I think that that is something that perhaps is solvable, but she wasn't able to solve that during the presidential campaign in 2020. She started out as, you know, as kind of a rock star with that gigantic rally in in Oakland that drew in the neighborhood of 20,000 people. She was considered, if not the front runner by any means, certainly a, a strong candidate for the nomination. And as the year went on, she began to fade and was never able to put things back together. I think one of the questions for her that would be raised again if she was running for president in 2024 uh, is what does she really stand for? What are her real beliefs? I think that was always kind of Achilles' heel of her candidacy in 2020, that she wasn't quite sure who she wanted to be or where she wanted to be on some of these issues. And so that kind of equivocation in the end, I think, turned people away from her rather than finding a way to draw them to her. That's going to be the challenge. I suppose the good thing for the bad publicity that she has gotten and the, the tough stories that she has gotten is that they have come relatively early in her tenure, and, and there's time to turn that around. But you know, going back to another vice president who had a terrible introduction, and that was Dan Quayle, Dan Quayle never got out from under that and therefore never really had an opportunity or good chance to win the nomination of his party when he decided that he wanted to run. I I wouldn't say at this point that Kamala Harris is in that position, but she certainly has challenges that she would overcome. There are any number of names that keep floating around about people who might challenge 
for the nomination if Biden does not run again. Um, it's too soon to really think about what that field would look like, but it would be a very tough nomination campaign. Far tougher, I think, than what we saw in 2020, when in a matter of days, the nomination congealed around Joe Biden. And I'm not sure that we would see that the next time around. Bill Galston, one could say that Kamala Harris, that her story so far was that she was an identity politics candidate. She checked all these boxes. I mean, she was female and mixed race, part black, part uh, South Asian, and uh, very articulate and good looking and the right age and all these things. But the one thing she neglected, as Dan was hinting, is what was her campaign about other than her identity? And and she didn't have anything there, it seems to me. And um, I'm just wondering whether you share that perception and whether you think the same question that I put to Dan, which is, do you think it's possible for the Democratic Party to deny the nomination to a sitting vice president? I do. And is it easy? No. Will it be smooth and without conflict? Certainly no. But I don't recall the late sainted Bob Dole deferring to George H.W. Bush you know, in the contest for the Republican nomination. And you know, I, I don't think that Kamala Harris would get more deference from her party <laughs> than George H.W. Bush did from his. But let me go back to the main point, which is Joe Biden. And here I'll make two observations. First of all, since I am younger than Joe Biden, but not by much uh, as these things go, I can report to you from the aging front that the hardest thing to do, especially you know, for a member of my gender tribe, is to acknowledge that you may be too old to do things that you've done all your life and that have really defined you to yourself, defined your identity. And for Joe Biden to look in the mirror sometime between November of 2022 and January or February of 2023, that's the narrow window. I think Damon is absolutely right that he can't do it before the midterms, but it can't be too long after the midterms either, or he would make it even more difficult for other Democrats to gin up campaigns than it would, would be already. I think that it will be psychologically extremely difficult for him to stand down. Having said that, this brings me to point two. For me, the question of what Joe Biden ought to do is within the framework of a very simple issue, namely, what would give the Democratic Party the best chance of defeating Donald Trump's effort to re-enter the White House through means other than the force of arms? And I don't think there's an obvious answer to that question. There are very few people who end up with enhanced status after a primary contest. And changing horses midstream is not typically the recommended strategy. So the case that Biden could not stand for re-election and defeat Donald Trump would have to be very, very solid. 
before I think it would make sense for the Democratic Party to take a chance on that strategy. Even if Biden's abilities to function as president are diminished, he could still turn out to be the Democrats' best chance for defeating Trump, all things considered. And that is the single metric I'd apply to this situation. Yeah. Uh, Linda, I'd like to hear you comment on that. But also, I would just note that um, looking back at our history, William McKinley was assassinated six months into his first term. And, uh, well, obviously, his first term. <laughs> when yes. you're assassinated, you don't get to run right. for re-election. Um, but anyway, he Not was yet, so... anyway. Right. I was thinking of TR. But anyway, so so uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, was vice president, succeeded him, and, and served out that term. And then ran in his own right in 1904, won by a landslide, but vowed that he would not seek another term, which for him really would have been his third term because of the strong tradition in American politics that had been established by George Washington that presidents only serve two terms. And he regretted it deeply. <laughs> now, whether that was for good or ill in the long run for the country is a long topic, but in that column by Brett Stevens that uh, David mentioned, he says, look, Biden could be liberated by not running. He could be statesmanlike. He could do the things that need to be done without worrying about how it would play politically. So respond to any of that, if you like. Well, I, maybe, but I, I agree with everyone who suggested he certainly could not make that decision before uh, the midterm elections because it would throw a monkey wrench in the whole thing. If he did, I think it would hurt the Democrats. I also, uh, Bill suggested that it was, you know, part of the male psyche that it's hard to admit that you're aging. Uh, as a woman of a certain age, uh, not quite as old as uh, either Bill or the president, uh, nonetheless, I think it's hard for all of us uh, who reach a certain age, and, and particularly if we're in public life, to admit that we can't do things as well or as vigorously as we have in the past. So saying that, uh, I think Bill may very well be right that he will not step aside. I'm not sure that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. I think it is altogether possible that you're going to see someone like a Ron DeSantis, who is sort of Trump light, end up uh, the nominee. And I think if it was a DeSantis-Biden fight, that DeSantis might very well win. So I think for the good of uh, the party, and I, you know, I say that not as a Democrat, but as advice to my Democratic friends, I think Biden should not run again. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for him to get reelected. I mean, his opinion uh, polls are, are, you know, they're not the worst ever, but, you know, having the amount of money that this president has given to families in the United States is parceled out uh, through his various legislative efforts, and he still only has 49% approval. I mean, he's out there lobbying every day for passage of yet another big, huge uh, infusion of money into the economy. Still is not uh, very popular. And you know, I, it isn't a question of whether or not he is mentally sound. I think he is. I mean, when I listen to him talk, yeah, he rambles. But I've been around this town a very long time. I, I knew Joe Biden when he was in his 30s, and he rambled then, too. I mean, it's just <laughs> the way he talks. Yes. Um, so it's, you know, that's not the problem. But there is, you know, there is a certain frailness that I see, and he just does not seem to have that vigor. But more importantly, 
this is a very perilous time in, in American democracy. And for the good of the country, I would hope that uh, Biden could see it to not running again and, you know, that Kamala Harris could decide the same thing because I think she would be an absolute disaster at the top of the ticket on the Democratic side. I don't know who the, the Democrats have that they could run, but I'm confident there's somebody out there that would represent the party better than uh, either Biden or Kamala Harris. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen on the Republican side. I guess I'm still enough of a conservative and still got enough Republican blood in me left to hope that there might actually even be a sane good Republican out there who would run. I mean, you know, can you imagine a Liz Cheney? Um, you know, I can't imagine her winning the nomination, but I'd certainly be very enthusiastic and work in a campaign if she decided she wanted to run. So it's going to be very tough. Uh, and the 2024 election is so fraught right now with the possibility of anti-democratic efforts to try to take away from the people, uh, the right to be able to select their own leader and to put that in the hands of ideologues in various uh, swing states, that I just want to see the best candidates possible running to give us the best chance that we're going to move out of the era that we've experienced over the last six years and into something better. Okay. So you wanted to comment, Bill. Just very briefly. I believe that Linda's scenario is imaginable only if Donald Trump does not seek the Republican nomination, because I view it as close to fantastically improbable at this point that if he sought the nomination, he would not receive it. But it's not my party. <laughs> I agree, Bill. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Dan, what did you want to add? I just want to reinforce the point that Bill made about the choice for Democrats and that is that ultimately the decision that Biden and, you know, and those around him and the party in a sense as a whole has to make is what gives them the best opportunity to defeat Trump if Trump is running again. You know, if you go back to 2020, and I think Bill was one of the earliest persons who said this to me as we were gaming out the nomination battle, Joe Biden will be the last candidate standing. And it was not because Joe Biden was necessarily the strongest appearing candidate uh, in terms of candidate skills or agenda or any of the other kinds of objective things we tend to look at or subjective things we tend to look at, but simply that he gave the party the best chance to win. And that was where more of the Democratic primary voters were than for any other aspect of this. Once you get through the midterms and the Democrats assess the the level of damage, and I'm not predicting how big or small that will be, but there will be some damage, as they assess that and look forward to 2024, they're going to be presented with the same question again, and that is, how do we hold on to the presidency, and who among the possibilities gives the party that best chance? And as Bill said, I don't think it will be based on the question of how diminished Joe Biden may look to some people, but rather, does he present to the country the best opportunity? So I think that that's a very, very important calculation that was, is going to have to be made in that in that period right after the midterms. I just want to note that uh, 
bulwark editor Jonathan Last has made the point um, many times that he believes Biden will have to run exactly because of what uh, Bill and Dan have both said, which is that the overriding issue is who can keep Trump out of the White House again. And Biden was well positioned to do that in in 2020. And it's really hard to see who among the Democrats who has a realistic chance to get the nomination would be equally able to able to do that. And therefore, Jonathan thinks that Biden will have to run. All right, let us now turn to our next topic. Topic three, has COVID-19 changed everything in terms of work and relationships and family? Bill Galson, I'm going to start with you. You had a column about that this week, and it was interesting. You, you dealt with the great resignation and a number of other issues that we're beginning to be able to sort out in the data about how this is affecting us. Yeah, uh, I think the, the hope of some and the belief of others a year into this was that once this unfortunate pandemic episode was over, we would sort of snap back into the kind of society we were before the pandemic. And that is not entirely without precedent. I've been looking hard for evidence that the Spanish influenza pandemic of a century ago fundamentally transformed American society. It's hard to find. Uh, But in this case, I am beginning to pick up signs that millions of Americans in very individual ways, but in the aggregate quite significant, are reevaluating what they want to do with their lives. They're also asking themselves, what is their best shot for having a long life in these circumstances? And so many older Americans who are actually the bright growth spot in the U.S. labor force for a very long time, while labor force participation was declining in other sectors of of the workforce, have now recused themselves from the labor force. And I believe that recusal, for the most part, will be permanent. You also have a lot of people reporting, and I believe these reports, that during this enforced new regime, that they have reevaluated the kind of work-family balance that they really want. You know, it turns out that holding down one job rather than two makes life less stressful in some ways, despite all the stresses of this pandemic. I could go on and on and on. The bottom line is that I think that the U.S. labor force is not going to be as large at the end of this as it was before all of all of this started, and that that's going to have ripple effects through the economy, which I spell out in my column. And this has all sorts of practical implications. Let me just name one, which the Federal Reserve Board seems to have recognized just this week. If the U.S. labor force is permanently smaller than it was going to be without the pandemic, then we are probably at full employment already. And that's certainly what employers think, which is why they're bidding up wages and and benefits in order to either hold on to the workers they have or get the ones they need. And this is going to have implications for capital investment, for long-term business planning, uh, and in many other respects as well. So that's a brief summary of my argument in my column. Yeah, thanks. Um, Damon, 
There are a number of little pieces of data that are pointing toward this this reevaluation on people's parts uh, about how they arrange their lives. Um, first of all, nobody really knew how it would be if so many white collar workers chose to work from home. I mean, the employers were against it, of course, they, and many of them still are, but employees by and large really like it. They like the flexibility and they want to continue to work from home. At least one survey found like most Americans, the averages, they, they want to work from home at least two days a week. And, um, you know, there are other little things like 46% of companies said they'd scaled back their real estate footprint. And uh, you have parents, for example, you know, there was a lot of talk about the stress of having to educate children at home, which I also was concerned about. I thought that was quite hard on families. But one survey that I saw found that when parents were asked whether educating their kids at home was stressful positive or a combination of both, 29% reported that it was both stressful and positive, 31% found it to be all positive, and only 19% said all stressful. Anyway, these are these are kind of interesting data, don't you think? Yeah, it, it is interesting, and we'll have to see how they all play out. I mean, it's we're very much talking about something we're still totally in the middle of, given that it's almost two years into this pandemic, and we're kind of looking up at the tidal wave of Omicron looming over our heads, and we don't know what that's going to do to a lot of this. So, you know, how, say, five years from now, everything looks, but hopefully by then, this is firmly in the past, including mask wearing and other things. But I do agree. I mean, I'm, I'm in kind of an odd position because I've worked from home mostly for a, the better part of a decade already. And yeah, I love it. It's very nice not to have to commute further than my bed to the coffee maker, uh, to the table <laughs> where my laptop is sitting. Uh, and, you know, my daughter gets home from school and I commute all the way to the front door to say, hi, how was your day? I mean, that's a very pleasant way to live. This is also very much, a, uh, as we say these days, a privileged way to live. The economy is still very heavily service work oriented and service work is by definition not the kind of thing that you can really do from home. And those are the lower paying jobs too. And those are the jobs where people never had the opportunity to work from home in the pandemic and risked their health and well-being a lot more than people like me had to because they were forced to go out and take subways and buses and actually keep going to work through the whole uh, slog of the pandemic. So how this all uh, plays out, and then as Bill talks about in his very good column, you know, there's also the dimension in the service industries, especially the kind of lower skilled service industries, you, you have the continuation of kind of technology, AI and robots and things like this that can enable, uh, say, restaurants not to have to employ as many service workers because you can just leave a little a tablet on the table for people to look at the menu and place the order. And then all you need is like a runner to bring your, your plate to you. So, you know, these are the, what this means in the end, I think, is that we're living through 
a continuation of an era of really significant kind of economic and social disruption where technology is changing the way we work, changing the way we get paid and the way we live our lives. And the pandemic has in a lot of ways accelerated this process and we don't yet know where it ends up. But yes, we are definitely in the midst of, of something big shifting. But as always, they were going to have a lot of ramifications we can't anticipate. Dan, the U.S. stands out for its uh, workaholism. We are really into our jobs, <laughs> much more than European countries and Latin American countries. I mean, Americans uh, work longer hours. They have their, more of their identity wrapped up in work than lots of people in other parts of the world. And um, as somebody, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I mean, I, I always placed my family first. I had three sons and I made it a priority to be there for my kids and to be a very much hands-on parent. Fortunately, you know, I had a supportive husband who could make an income that allowed that, no question. But it was also a matter of, of choosing and, and, and being more concerned about the welfare of one's children than, say, getting that next brass ring professionally. Do you have the impression that, A, do you think I'm right about our obsession with work? And do you think that those priorities uh, are changing? I hear, I hear they are among younger people. You've got a lot of young people at the Post. What do you sense? I, I think that's right. Um, I, I, it's certainly right that Americans are more work-obsessed um, than Europeans and, and, and other places around the world. I think that the younger generation, the younger people around here, have both a tremendous work ethic and a desire to find a different way of being able to work. Our newsroom has been open on a limited basis since July, and I'm actually in the newsroom as we speak. And it's a pretty empty newsroom. Uh, most people still have chosen not to come back and to continue to work at home. And there are a, lot, a fair number of people who come in a few days a week, as do I. I'm not in five days a week. But from everything I've observed and heard, it's the younger reporters and editors and, and everything else that we do now who have preferred not to work in the newsroom. They want to find a way to work remotely. And I think that that's probably going to be a permanent change. I think that the notion of people working in offices five days a week for the foreseeable future and beyond will not be the case. I think that we will be working in a different way. I want to make a couple of other observations, though. One, in the, the data you were citing about how parents perceive the positives and negatives of educating children at home, I would be curious to see what that looked like if the children were surveyed. My sense is that this has taken a, it's obviously taken a toll on everybody. I mean, I think all of us would, would say that in, in, in various ways, this has affected our psyches and our relationships and, and the way we think about what we do and the world around us. But I think for, you know, the generation of young people, people who are in elementary school and junior high school and high school and college, this has been a battering experience. And I think we're going to be dealing with that for quite some time, and I, I worry about the consequences of that, both in terms of exacerbating the, you know, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, but just in kind of the, the stresses and strains on young people as they're entering their formative years and what they will take away from that. 
I had a conversation a month into the pandemic with Mike Levitt, who's the former governor of Utah and the former HHS secretary and, and a person I've dealt with for many years and, and always have thought of him as an exceedingly even-keeled and, and thoughtful public servant. And he had, for whatever reasons, and I can't tell you what they were, had, had looked at the history of pandemics before this one hit. And he said to me, and I quoted it in a piece in April of 2020, he said, major pandemic episodes throughout history have one thing in common. They all changed the economic patterns of the world, rejiggered the politics, and stimulated rapid change in sociologic patterns. The pandemic of 2020 will be no different. And I think that has played out in so many different ways and continues to play out. And, you know, Bill's very good column enumerated so much of what we are seeing in, in the workplace. But when I come downtown, downtown Washington, and, and see a not even half full downtown and think about all of the businesses that are dependent on people being in offices and what those business owners and their workers have gone through and continue to go through. And as you go from the original coronavirus to the, to the Delta variant to now the Omicron variant, and therefore the expectation that there will be other variants that will seek to you know, get around whatever protections we have. Living with this is now a constant part of life for everybody, and it is affecting the way people think about their own lives and their own futures. And the consequences of that, I think, are going to be enormous. Yeah, thank you. Linda, uh, Dan is, is surely right about uh, the effects on young people. I mean, the, when you're growing up, I mean, peer relationships are intensely important. And those, you know, we're now coming on two years of, of uh, limited interactions. And those are years that those kids are never going to get back. And that is kind of scary. So that's that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there are surveys, like there was one from 538, where they teamed up, I think, with Ipsos and and uh, asked kids how they were doing. And the kids were very resilient. Uh, you know, they, of course, they did say they missed their friends and social interactions, but a lot of them said they felt fine. They weren't having any mental health crises. Now, there's a lot of doubt about that. I mean, the, the data, I don't think, will become clear for, for a while in terms of mental health issues. But it is notable, Linda, that when people talk about the Great Resignation, I mean, a lot of that has been women. And within that category, there's the older women who are getting close to retirement age, but then the other big tranche is mothers. And about, according to one survey that McKinsey did, about a third of mothers are considering downshifting their careers or pulling out of the workforce altogether. Now, a lot of people are going to say that's terrible, and it represents a, a defeat for women and that they will earn less money over their lifetimes, which, by the way, is true. They will if they if they drop out of the workforce. They'll earn less money. And they will also, when they want to return to the workforce, they're going to have a little bit of a harder time competing you know, with people who did not drop out of the workforce. But in light of what I said earlier, I'm not sure that's, you know, on balance, a, you know, a terrible thing. What, what's your view? Well, of course, it depends. And if you're talking about college-educated women, uh, women who largely have either white-collar or professional jobs. Well, it has to be them because the, the other women don't have a they choice. They don't have a choice. Right. That's yeah. what I was just about to say. They're the ones yeah. that have a choice. Yeah. Um, by the way, I mean, you and I have argued uh, for years uh, that women do make choices uh, on in terms of their career that take into account their family obligations. And... 
I think what some women are finding uh, during the pandemic, those who've actually left the workforce, is that the money that they thought they were bringing in was a lot less than what they actually were bringing in. So that when it was cut off, they realized, well, yeah, that's true, but I don't drive to work anymore. I don't have to buy work clothes. I don't have to buy lunch out of the house. There are lots of costs that go along with uh, working as well. And so even for those women who may not be in, in professions and may not be, you know, six-figure earners, but uh, women who are supplementing the family income by working, they may find that that supplementation, particularly if, if they have children who are not of school age and therefore require daycare of some sort, that they really weren't working except to pay for the cost of working. So I think some of those women may make a, a wise financial decision and decide that they want to spend time with their kids uh, when they're young before they're in school full-time, and that they weren't making all that much money anyway by going out into the workforce. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I should quickly add that we are aware that there are dads who make these decisions too, yes, and we, yes, you know, God bless absolutely them. Absolutely true. Yep. Um, there are dads who decide to do this with their lives, and you know, it's just that there are many, many fewer. So you know, in general, it's a, it's a mom thing. All right. Well, we will obviously... Um, learn more uh, about the huge effects of COVID-19 on uh, our work and every other aspect of our lives in the coming months and years. And we will now turn to our next topic. Okay, it is time for the highlight or low light of the week. And I will start with our guest, Dan Balls. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This has been very enjoyable and stimulating. I wanted to do a highlight, which is a book that I just finished, which is not a brand new book. It's been out at least a year, but it's uh, Frederick Logeval's first of two volumes biography of JFK, which takes you from JFK's birth through 1956. It is a splendid biography. It's just, it's wonderfully written. It's just full of information. It gives you a sense of how JFK was formed. And as much as I look forward to the second volume, which will be, I suspect, some years in the making, what I learned about Kennedy gave me a much deeper understanding of the kind of person who came to the presidency and the worldview that he had. So it is a great book. Thanks for that. Well, uh, how do you spell the name of the author, the last name? The last name is L-O-G-E-V-A-L-L. -L. He's a historian who is at Harvard. Great. Thank you for that. Okay, uh, and thanks for being here. This is really wonderful. Um, Linda Chavez. Uh, well, I'm going to uh, point to an article that was a great article, so it's a highlight from that point of view, but was a real low light in terms of the content. It was in Vox, and it was written by Yasha Monk and Roberto Foa, and the title of the article was Are Americans Losing Faith in Democracy? It was a totally depressing read because what it shows is that Americans are less and less trustful of our democratic institutions. They have extremely poor views of Congress and its role in American life. The younger Americans are not engaged with politics. We know that, obviously, by just looking at voter participation. 
But more importantly, young Americans apparently are quite open to the idea of non-democratic rule. They don't really necessarily believe that democracy is the best form of government. Americans born since 1970, you know, nearly a quarter of them, not quite that much, but but almost uh, that much, believe that living in a democracy is not all that important. They're also increasingly uh, overall open to non-democratic alternatives to government, including Americans, you know, being willing to to have the military run the government. So I think it's worth taking a look at, certainly given our uh, what's happened over the last uh, few years. This is a very, very troubling set of appalling data. Okay. And uh, we will put that in the show notes. Damon Linker. Well, uh, to loop back to uh, some of the themes from the first half of the podcast, I want to highlight an essay by Jonah Goldberg in The Dispatch. Jonah, listeners may be aware, uh, he and uh, Stephen Hayes both quit Fox News about a month ago, uh, ended their contracts about a year before they were going to be up. Then late last week, I believe Chris Wallace, who was a, a very prominent journalist uh, at Fox, one of the people on the non-entertainment side of the network, uh, he quit and very quickly announced that he was going to CNN. And then, of course, the information that has come out from the January 6th committee in Congress about these text messages from people like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram to Mark Meadows at the White House, uh, imploring the White House to get Trump to stop the riot on Capitol Hill on January 6th. In light of all of that, Jonah has written uh, an essay in which he sort of finally comes clean at, at some length about why he uh, he quit Fox, and it's a pretty stunning indictment of the network and the role that it serves in the uh, the conservative ecosystem of the United States. And uh, it also includes a very good section about the logic of what's called whataboutism, the tendency of people in that on the network in Fox, but then in general on the Trumpian right to respond to any criticism, no matter how legitimate and founded in reality it is, to respond to that by immediately finding something analogous that the left does and then immediately pivoting to an attack on that, which is just a massive act of changing the subject and avoiding criticism. And he's very good at just laying out the kind of logical fallacies involved in this. So it's a good a good read and an important one in kind of laying bare the reality of the, of the role of Fox in the right and what it's become in our time. I agree. I thought that was a great piece. And I also want to say I honor Jonah for having been very honest and reflective where he says, look, I, you know, I may have contributed to this in some way to being on team liar, you know, because he was peering on Fox and he was lending them, he doesn't say this, but he was lending them, you know, his, his reputation and so on. And even though he almost never got the opportunity to comment on Trump, you know, just his being there was in a way enabling the whole 
rotten enterprise. And so he felt he had had enough. Yeah, he also discusses the the very uh, brutal truth of the fact that he would be right there in the green room hearing their on-air talent say certain things. And then they'd like give him the old attaboy, high five, as soon as they get off the air and say the exact opposite. So yep. they knew they were lying. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, he just said enough. Okay, Bill Galston. This seems to be a day not only for highlights, but written highlights. And I'm going to make it unanimous. I want to give a shout out to my Brookings colleague, Bruce Jones, who went around the world looking at the role of oceans and navies through history and in the present day. He's just published recently a book called To Rule the Waves, which is, I think, the state-of-the-art examination of what sea struggles geopolitical and military are going to look like in the first half of the 21st century. I recommend it highly. Excellent. Well, since Damon took my highlight, um, <laughs> I'm, going to, <laughs> I'm going to substitute something else. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't ha- it's um, amazing that it doesn't happen more often on here. I know. Um, but uh, but I, I also uh, would like to mention, this is both a highlight and a lowlight. I'm, I'm praising this editorial by Michael Bloomberg uh, on the Bloomberg website, but I'm decrying the action of the city council in New York, which announced this week that they were going to allow non-citizens to vote in their elections which is just, I mean, talk about handing the Republicans a huge gift wrap, you know, uh, treasure. You know, Republicans already are constantly saying that Democrats only want immigrants because they want to, you know, increase their voting rolls and and they want to flood the country with illegals who will then vote and so on and so forth. And, And now these would not be illegals, but let me make that clear. These are people with green cards. But nevertheless, citizenship is citizenship and one of the one of the key features of being a citizen is that you have rights and responsibilities that accompany citizenship and one of the rights and responsibilities it's really both is to vote and uh so this is mike bloomberg wrote a whole editorial about this and uh, just about it's just a terrible idea substantively and it's a terrible terrible blunder politically playing into the hands of the gop sorry but all right well with that, I want to thank Dan Balls again for joining us. I hope you'll come back. And I want to thank all of you for listening, all of your comments, all of your letters. I read them all. I don't always get to respond. I try to respond to as many as I can, though, as those of you who've written are aware. And we will return next week, as every week. 